This is the Ballad of Danny Bailey, um, which was actually written quite late on in the process. This was this was written at the Chateau, in fact, um, and it really shows off Dee's, Dee Murray's bass playing, which I think is superb. He's a well, he's an underrated and superb musician. His his sense of melody and his sense of understanding um, the lyric and the way that the whole thing has to feel was, as far as I'm concerned, faultless. I've never really come across a bass player quite as good as him. Um, so I'm going to leave him in so you can hear a bit of what he's doing on the front, because it's very unusual what he does. So here we go, Danny Bailey. Some punk with a shotgun killed young Danny Bailey cold blood in the lobby of a downtown motel now here comes D now listen killed him in anger a force he couldn't handle help pull the trigger that cut short his life and there's section. And welcome to the eighth episode of the, I guess that's why they call it the Elton John podcast podcast. Today's episode doesn't need much in the way of explanation or justification. It is simply the D. Murray Lovin. Can it be that much of a coincidence that Elton John's most golden eras of a recording, 1970s and 1975, and to a lesser degree, 1982 to 1984, coincide with the periods that Dee Murray was in the band. I don't think it is much of a coincidence. We're not here to talk about the sadness around Dee and Nigel being dropped from the band twice. I think maybe that comes under the context of another show. Today, we're only about listening and celebrating. It's also going to take a bit of a chronological format, so it's going to be a little bit biographical, but very vaguely. Mostly, we're just going to listen to D and the bass lines. One thing that D and his bass lines did for me, personally, is to help me to listen to music more three-dimensionally, to start when I was a young man, to really want to dig around to understand what was going on in a song and what the individual musicians are doing. If a bassist is locked into the groove, that's great. In fact, it's incredibly great. On this, on researching this, I've been listening to some amazing bassists and their work. Uh, for example, stuff like uh, Soul Man by Sam and Dave. B-A-B-Y Baby by Carla Thomas. Both of those parts were played by Duck Dunn, who was in Booker T and the MGs. And he worked in-house at Stax. He's got the easiest, coolest sound you're ever going to hear in his parts. He sounds like he's not really trying at all. D, on the other hand, was not really one to lock himself into a simple groove. Maybe some songs, Philadelphia Freedom comes to mind, where he's a bit more in the pocket but then again, he's really not. He's got some really eccentric lines in that song. And actually, in the chorus, it sounds like he's the lead instrument at times. But as I was saying, as a kid, listening to Elton's music and listening to Dee's parts, it was like an adventure. Where was he going to go next? Would that part be repeated? And then, you know, you'd have to listen back to see what he actually did. His work really bears repeated re-listening and it taught me how to listen like I say it taught me that the more you dig the more there is to dig man D comes from the melodic school of bass playing alongside the likes of Paul McCartney uh, John Deacon and Herbie Flowers 
We're going to talk about what it means to be melodic alongside Elton singing and playing a good deal in this episode. He did do simple things as well. Think about the bass part to harmony, for example, where he is very tasteful and not stealing the show in any way whatsoever. But when all's said and done, Dee's going to be remembered as a man that brought some unexpected colour and beauty to songs that already had that in spades. In this episode, to try and give you a bit of an enhanced experience of these bass lines, I've gone to YouTube, where there are some brilliant players who do their own transcriptions and bass covers of their favourite bass lines, including these. I'm so thankful to these talented people who I'm going to talk about and actually talk to as the show goes on. Without them in this show, we'd just be listening to some re-EQ'd versions of the studio recordings with the bass turned right up um, as far as I feel I could get away with it at least and the experience would be really muddy and grim but by using these bass covers um, essentially we get to hear the bass parts turned right up obviously it's not Dee's actual playing but I've been selective and the guys that I've chosen have got a great sound and a good style and I think if you love Dee you're going to love this show by the way, if you do have anything to say about the show, if it's good or if it's bad, please drop me an email on eltonpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, it's more than time I got started. We came in listening to Gus Dudgeon talking about uh, Dee's playing on the ballad of Danny Bailey. That's from the documentary about the recording of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. I've done a whole load of waffling since then, so I'm gonna remind, let's remind ourselves of that part again briefly courtesy this time of YouTube bass transcriber Jason Reese. an example for Gus to have picked that one out. Dee's playing some audacious notes in the verse, really cheeky, a whole octave higher than he's got any right to be playing as a bassist. And at one point he plays the same thing a whole beat late. It's really playful and it's really loud. Obviously it is here, but in the recorded version on the album, the bass is turned up really high, the whole band is, but the bass in particular is really high. Once the song settles down into the more straightforward groove of the chorus, D goes down in pitch, but it's still really interesting what he does. Um, particularly great is that bit towards the end where he doubles what the guitar does and he gives the whole thing such a dignified, structured sound. It's completely in contrast to what's going on in the verse. This song is a classic bit of D playing. We're going to go out listening to the full six minutes of the band playing this song live in Hammersmith from Christmas 1973, um, which came out on the deluxe edition of Goodbye Librit Road. There's so much to revel in there. I'm just going to let you get on with that at the end. I won't go on too much about it now. Let's get biographical for a moment. D Murray was born in Gillingham in Kent, my hometown. Uh, although he moved to London at the age of seven, he seems to have had a fairly typical upbringing. He wasn't particularly musical. And um, By the way, this information comes from the incredible Keith Haywood biography. He managed to interview Dee Murray's wife, Annette. He worked in a car service shop um, as a youngster out of school, and he met a guy called Sid, who invited him to join a band called the Thunderbolts. He lent him a bass and Dee taught himself, that was it. And then he was with that band for three years. They were 
a little bit successful locally, playing Cliff Richard and the Shadows covers. Also on the local scene there in Barnet was a band called The Mirage. They were much more successful though. They were composed mostly of brothers with the surname Hines. There was also a guitarist from a different family. Um, Dee threw it all in with the Hines brothers. He moved out of home and he went on to the European circuit. They recorded some singles on Philips and on CBS and eventually found their way to Page One Records um, and directly to Dick James's door. Let's have a listen to their most widely heard piece of music. It still wasn't that widely heard. It's their fourth single from 1967 and it's called The Wedding of Ramona Blair. In the cosy bed, Ramona dreams of the very next day. Going round her head, the sound of a brother next door saying his prayers. Tried on her very best face But she looked the same She sighed and she carried on sewing her lace People came but the groupie wasn't there At the wedding of Ramona Blair It was nice join me there's a weird tremolo effect going on on his bass sound there and his bass is up really high in the mix he's picked some interesting notes for the end of the chorus this is a a song in the psychedelic tradition one of those character studies one of those very British things with lots of layered vocals it's Beatlesy. it's Pink Floydy it sounds you know, it's kind of similar to Arnold Lane in a way, which came out around about the same time. I really like that modal interlude before we go back into the verse. It lifts the song. It's otherwise it's it's quite pretty. Perhaps it's a little bit meandering musically. As I said, they were signed to Page One, and as such, they were um, aligned with Dick James, and that's how Elton came to use the band along with Caleb Quay on his early recordings as we talked about in the third episode of this podcast it's intriguing isn't it to think of Dee and the Heinz brothers playing on those tunes let's have a listen again to a bit of you'll be sorry to see me go and wonder to ourselves is that Dee's playing style on there like it is to me of course D didn't end up featuring on Empty Sky but he surely would have been on there and not his namesake Tony Murray if he hadn't have been off on the road earning some actual money and that's because the Mirage folded in October of 1968 when D and Dave Hines the drummer joined the Spencer Davis group and they did a lot of touring um, made a bit of money doing that I think Dave found life on the road quite hard and he left and that's how Nigel Olsen came to join the Spencer Davis group just in time for them to record one album the one album that they did with that lineup which was called Funky it was received pretty poorly um, 
and uh, they kept on playing up until 1970, which is when Elton came came a knocking. Let's have a listen to one of those Spencer Davis songs from Funky, but it's not a particularly funky song. This one, it's called "What a Way to Die." I just read a piece from the news today. A story about a star who took his life Tomorrow there'll be a death and a Broadway play Cause then I'm about to die As I say, this is quite atypical of the rest of the album, which to me is pretty simplistic rhythm and blues. This piece is more loungy, it's like a smoky jazz bar, sleazy dive kind of thing. I chose it because we can hear Dee's playing really clearly on this, and also because it's unusual to hear Dee playing in that lounge style. Anyway, let's move right into the bones of the matter. The first work that Dee did with the Elton John Band, this is Amarina, the only song that Dee and Nigel played on, on Tumbleweed Connection. This is, if you don't mind me saying, a hugely sexy bass line. D is just so well meshed in with both the piano and the vocal when Elton's really pushing things like he does in the first half of the third verse, which we just heard there. D's a little bit more reserved. This sort of thing must have been really instinctive for them. This was obviously recorded live with the three of them playing at once. What a unit they were. This right here, this is Dee's style. No one else sounds like this. He seems to have no respect at all for the downbeat. He so often straddles the first beat of the bar with long, high, held notes. He plays with your expectations. And he spins around just in front of that first beat of the bar he, th- he makes you think he's going to play a nice heavy thunking note, but he doesn't. He refuses to. He jumps clean over the beginning of the bar and lands in next week. It's so fun. It's so playful. There's so much melody in his parts. They're so high in tone and so decorative. But when he needs to, he sinks, he sinks his pile driver down just to get the foundations as firm as they need to be to build what is a really quirky, unstable, unsteady rock song. 
The recording that we just heard was made by Brian Roten. He's got many brilliant, groovy, accurate transcriptions up over on YouTube. And he also writes for the bass magazine No Treble. I had a bit of a chat with him about his transcriptions and for his love of D. Murray in general. Here's some of our conversation from earlier on this week. Starting off on the Amarina thing, because I did... Um, that was like the first Elton John transcription I did. I did it for a patron who requested it. I was like, okay, yeah, cool. I like I like Tumbleweed. You know, this would be a cool song to do. And plus, D. Murray is, is awesome. And, yeah. you know, so that was kind of my attitude about going into it. And then when I really started to, like, get into the, you know, all the notes and just the 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 trajectory of the baseline i was like this is actually really impressive like what he's doing here um, and that was his first recording I mean, as well with, with yeah that album. was that was his first recording and you know i guess for him it was sort of like his audition in a way you know he really wants to impress elton i guess with this you know what i mean he's really like he's really fully manifesting his vision and aptitude as a as a player um mm. and, and like i said as, as from coming from having a compositional background um when I look at bass playing and I look at songs, I, I have that that mind. As I, I I think about it from how the person who's writing it or composing it is thinking about it and what their what what decisions they made in the process, what problems they had, and, and the way they they worked around them. Yeah. And so, one thing that very much impresses me about bass players as I've done these is, is um, an attention to form and to trajectory, like the, the shape of the bass line as a whole. You know, so I mean, if you look at things on the micro level, like where things are like, oh, this is a cool bar, this is a cool little fill, whatever. Yeah. But if you take a step back and look at the whole thing, you can kind of see there's like this shape to it. You know what I mean? And that's what I what really impressed me about these playing. Amarina was recorded in March of 1970, just as the band were rehearsing and getting together a set to promote the Elton John album. It clearly worked amazingly well in that three-piece arrangement, because uh, they felt they didn't have any choice but to use it that way on the album. Let's move on now then to have a listen to the three-piece themselves after that summer of frustrations that they had in Europe when they arrived in America... When the magic really started to take hold, we've got a recording of that, of course. It's the album 171170. We'll have a listen now to a fairly hefty chunk from the song Take Me to the Pilot. Oh, the truth. 
Just how much fun does it sound like they're having there? The style of Dee's playing here is quite similar to what he's doing on Amarina in many regards. The power in this setup, the three piece, is that both Elton and Dee are able to provide the rhythmic backbone and provide the melodic push in their playing. And they swing in and out of these different roles, always sensitive and complementing each other, never letting either the melodic or the rhythmic elements slide in the song as a whole. Dee can obviously rely at certain times on Elton stamping a bass note clean into the ground, and he doesn't need to repeat this. If Elton goes low, he goes high. At times, in this live three-piece, he seems to be replicating a lead guitar line. I think in Burn Down the Mission at certain points he does that. At other times he takes on a quasi-orchestral thunderous tone. I'm thinking of 60 Years On, of course. Here he sounds like what he is, a bassist playing the most perfect music to suit his style, absolutely at the top of his game and having a huge amount of fun in the process. Let's have a listen to another transcription. This is by a very talented young man called Jonathan Eliashiv. This is his Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. What do you think you do then? I bet the sheet down the plane. It'll take you a couple of hours. You're in town. It's to set you on your feet again. Maybe you get a replacement. There's plenty like me to be found. Mom grows. Do we? Wonderful stuff. As with everything on this album, the bass is turned up pretty high, considering everything else that's going on. The notes here are pretty simplistic for the most part. They follow the hopping bass notes on the piano. They sound like they're searching for something, those notes. Here he respects the bar line. He always plays on the chord change every now and again. He drives up really high on the fretboard, never as high as he does with that top D when, he, when Elton sings back to the howling old owl in the wood in the second chorus. I remember that note just completely flooring me as a child. It stands up clean out of the song like a lamppost in the flood. It's just something to cling to. And towards the end of the song, D stretches the song a little bit, puts a couple of uh, transitional notes and he slightly puts the swing back into the song. It's almost not there in the root of the song, but he puts a couple of swung notes in. This song is a prime example of D providing exactly what a song needs. His playing is so tasteful. It benefits the song perfectly. If you choose to listen deeper, more closely, and to focus on the nuances of what D is doing, he's always going to reward you. He does. He just doesn't draw attention to himself in a thoughtless manner. He's always there, giving us a little bit more than we deserve. I think D's playing was at a serious peak on Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Maybe that's why there are so many great covers of his bass lines from that album on YouTube. Let's sample another one of them. This is Grey Seal, and the cover comes from 
Cover Solutions. cheeky notes in the pre-verse section all those little flattened fifths the second time the time that we heard there he does it a whole octave higher as if to make the whole thing even dafter there's so much energy in his playing in this song with some of the fastest player i think playing we ever get to hear from d he's got that proper single-minded driving sound going on in the choruses and then upper tone in the outro there and he punctuates it with some little speedy runs up the fretboard. This playing is a bit more straightforward from D, but it's lots of fun. Let's move on to another Brian Roten cover. This one is getting to be more and more seasonally appropriate the longer I take to get this episode out. It's Step Into Christmas. <laughs> Finding any which way to colour and to vary what is essentially a simple 1-4-5 chord progression from Elton. He does those jumps from low to high in each bar of the chorus. And they give the whole thing a humorous sound and loads of energy. Brian, when he's written about this bass part, calls it a carved compositional part, which I think is a great description. Brian and I talked a little bit about this as well. Here's what we said about Step Into Christmas. I can tell that, you know, when he's playing, like if, if he's on the first chorus, he's already thinking about what he's going to be playing on the third chorus. You know what I mean, and that's really, that, that, that kind of intelligence is like really impressive to me that he's, he's, he's sort of introducing a theme or a little, little riff or idea yeah. um, that he will be um, elaborating on you know, two or three iterations of this part, you know, down later into the song. He's not going to blow everything he's got at the beginning. He's saving something back. 
And that's right. And a, a lot of bass players would blow everything in the beginning because, like, oh, look at this cool thing I can do. Like, and then, then after that, it's sort of like you blew your load. And then, like, where do you go from here? Yeah. Um, but like I said, getting back to like, he's just, he's very sophisticated and discerning about what he plays, when he plays, and you know, and he he develops ideas as as they go throughout the song. And again, getting getting back to that that concept of trajectory in bass parts, mm-hmm. like it's it's almost like it's a song inside of itself. I've already mentioned Philadelphia Freedom, which is the song we're going to look at next. It baffles me that Elton recorded this and then thought to himself, hmm, I need to change this bassist. Because Dee's playing here is nothing short of phenomenal. He almost deserves a songwriting credit for this bass line. Let's have a listen, courtesy of YouTube bassist Greg Fairweather. Yes, I do. one brings it all together for me he goes in and out of different styles there are bits where he is melodic bits where he is frankly silly and other bits where he's being as funky thunky and soulful as he's able to get perhaps elton's choice to move away from his classic era band had more to do with wanting to change nigel than it did changing d He said at the time that he wanted a band that cooks. He wanted a band that was more simplistic and groovy. Heavier, maybe. Cooler, perhaps. I think in a way he started at that point to lose track of what made those albums up to Captain Fantastic work as wonderfully as they did. Not that I wouldn't have liked to have heard the Elton John band kick back and get soulful, but that never really ever seemed to happen either. Maybe in a way. Not not the way that Elton envisaged. Nothing ever happens how we expect it to happen, though. Anyway, this is exactly what I said I wouldn't be doing, sort of going down into the details and the sad story. Of course, if I were doing a real profile of Dee's career, I'd play you some of the material that he worked on between 1975 and 1980 when he rejoined the band. But honestly, I couldn't find that much of interest. I know that he played with Procol Harum at that time. He played live, but he didn't record with them. He also played with Alice Cooper and Rick Springfield, um, Billy Joel as well, I think. I honestly couldn't find much of interest in the work that he did in that time. Going way back, I did really enjoy his work that he did in 1971 and 1972 with Ray Fenwick, that's Fenwick, of course, and Mick Grabham, Grabham, um, I'm not going to play any of that here, but I would say that if after this show you want to have your D. Murray fix, I would seek out the album by Ray Fennick, Keep America Beautiful, Get a Haircut, and also Mick the Lad, 
by Mick Grabham. Both of them are really great albums. Anyway, let's skip forwards to 1983 to a very different bit of bass playing from D. This is I'm Still Standing, courtesy of John Arana. there playing without his trusty pick halfway between plucking and slapping the strings and there are obviously some real slap notes here something we don't hear a lot of in Elton's music D stays on the same notes all the way through the verse well not all the way through but quite a bit almost as much as Elton does and with each phrase he sort of picks it up has a wander around and then comes back to the home position he's very strict and accurate on the timing in this song. I think his playing is a really big part of the song, and yet it's lower in the mix than we heard D in the classic era. As goes for everything released by D in his second period in the band, he just they seem to have turned him down a little bit to me. And then just as quick as he was back in, he was gone again. In 1985, Elton wanted to shake things up again, and he got in a large number of new musicians once again, D was fired without hearing it directly from Elton, without really knowing why. And if you ever get to hear Nigel talk about this, it's very sad. Um, that's before Nigel was invited to rejoin the band, of course. In the end, the answer to why he was fired and why he was treated fairly shabbily is that Elton John, at points at least during his career, has been capricious, disloyal, and cowardly. Dee didn't do a, a whole lot of music after this point. He was about to go back on the road um, when he got a diagnosis of cancer. He lost his health. Of course, he died very young. Elton did go out to Nashville, um, where Dee saw out his final years to play a couple of testimonial shows um, that was in 1992 here he is talking about D as he introduced sorry seems to be the hardest word incidentally I'm here tonight uh, to pay tribute to the memory of someone who affected me as a musician and as a person very much uh, I didn't realise how much until he'd gone and uh, when D passed away a couple of months ago, it left a big hole in my life, and uh, I'm here tonight to say thanks to him, um, because without him and Nigel, things just wouldn't have happened for me the way they did. Um, I feel truly blessed to have had Dee in my life, and uh, to have known him, and to know his courage. Dee, you was like, um, on tour, D was the sort of person who complained about everything. Um, I took that mantle over later on in my life. Um, <laughs> but uh, I never heard D complain once when he was sick. And that's pretty amazing, because he was uh, in a lot of pain. So tonight is going to be, it's a sad night, but it's um, a magical night, because we're paying tribute to someone who gave the world a lot of love and a lot of music. So this is all about D Murray tonight, okay? D. Murray achieved an amazing amount in his 45 short years. The music that we love would have been significantly less lovely without his imprint on it. 
He's rarely there in the listings of the top whatever number of bassists of all time. He seems to suffer from association, maybe, with being in a pop band rather than in, than in a rock band. And also because his style is so colourful and so clever, perhaps it's not seen as being particularly manly. Obviously, this doesn't affect Paul McCartney, who's usually way up there in these lists, but then I guess many things don't apply to Paul McCartney. Hopefully, what we've seen from what we've listened to today is that Dee really does deserve a place in the upper echelons among the other bass-playing greats. Let's go out with something from the classic era. This is Dee playing the ballad of Danny Bailey from 1973, live at the Hammersmith Odeon. There's no need to re-EQ him here. He's as loud as any bassist could ever hope to be in a live mix. This is a real treat if you've never heard this song live before. Jonathan Eliashev, who we heard earlier on playing the song Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, said this when I contacted him about using his recording on the show. He said, I've loved Dee Murray's playing for years and hearing his lines always reminds me why I started playing bass. It's hard to pick favourites, but I think mine might be the ballad of Danny Bailey. He uses the entire range of the instruments so well, and his tone is perfectly picky and dirty. Let's go out with that song then, the ballad of Danny Bailey. Some punk with a shotgun Kill young Danny Bailey In cold blood In the lobby of a downtown motel Killed him in anger A force he couldn't handle Pull the trigger The cat shot his life And there's nothing in knew him Kentucky loved him Born and raised a brother I guess life just fucked him And he found faith in danger A lifetime to live by A running young youngster And a sideways the car.